Hey, Peacenicks. Today's guest is Claire Zagorski. She is co-host of Drug Futurism's podcast, where they have conversations about the current state of the world under drug prohibition and all the damage the war on drugs has cost us and what different possible futures we could have as the drug war ends or kind of de-evolves into something less like war and more like a manageable system of regulations. So check out the podcast Drug Futurisms to learn more. Uh, She also works at Farm Program, that's P-H-A-R-M Program. It's a harm reduction group that provides naloxone and they train people to use this opioid overdose reversal miracle drug that's a lifesaver. I learned talking to her that um, the phrase harm reduction is actually taboo for some, and uh, she's been told not to use it when giving some speeches. Uh, People get turned off by the word harm reduction because people view harm reduction as enabling. These are people that want only abstinence, stay off drugs, and what happens when people die or get a disease like HIV from not having access to clean needles? Well, according to the anti-harm reduction people, That's what happens when you use drugs. Shouldn't use drugs. But I say that's what happens when you don't allow people access to a safe supply of the drug that they want to use. This abstinence way of thinking, it's the same as the conservative talking points on sex. These, you know, Christian groups that oppose handing out condoms, you know, canning condoms out at school or oppose birth control. Abstinence only works for some. Others are going to have premarital casual sex with each other. Others are going to use heroin to treat their depression or PTSD, or they're going to use cocaine or meth or whatever. Claire also talked about these underground um, safe injection sites. These are like illegal operations. They're not legal. She's in Texas. And um, they have these underground harm reduction places that have needle exchanges and nurses working there that are armed and ready to, to administer naloxone if someone, you know, gets a bad batch of heroin cut with too much fentanyl because they have to buy it on the black market. These nurses, um, they're not only risking getting arrested, but also losing their medical credentials and and careers. But they got into nursing because they wanted to help people. And this work actually saves lives. These people are heroes. And the villain is the war on drugs machine that would strip a nurse from her career for saving lives. Okay, Peacenicks, you're gonna enjoy today's podcast. With Claire Zagorski, let's go ahead and dive in. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug Drugs abuse. are menacing our society. Your thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us. This is the piece on drugs. On drugs. Yeah, I've been listening to your podcast, so I hate... That I didn't know about it sooner. Uh, my assistant said that he had you for the show. This was last um, the last time we had it booked, and I said, "I said that's great. What does she do?" And he's like, uh, "Harm reduction." So I was like, "Okay, cool." And I had to work over the weekend, and then that morning I woke up to start looking into you, and I was like, "She has a podcast." Like he's told me this. So I've been listening all weekend. This is, and it's not just any podcast. It's almost like your same thing I'm doing, right? The, fighting the war on drugs or talking about the end of the war on drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, the podcast is pretty new for us, so, you know, don't feel bad. We have a handful of episodes out. Um, but it's been, it's been pretty cool and it's been, uh, you know, a really good exercise, I think, to try to imagine a better potential future when we're kind of mired in 
a lot of current day unpleasantness. So, um, and, you know, I think it's important to, to be able to imagine that. And that's a big part of the reason I imagine why you too, uh, you know, want to be able to share this with people is that, you know, it's hard to imagine something that you can't see you can't visualize anyway. And so I think it, it's helpful to give people, you know, that the ability to really hope for something tangible, I think. So, yeah, it's been, it's been awesome. And same to you, you know, I'm so behind on all of the podcasts and, the media that I need to, you know, there's so much good stuff out there. So yeah, I'm excited. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it was just really cool drug features. And so I was like, I can't, cause I've been looking at all the different podcasts that are on topic. And like you said, yours is new. You started uh, just this year. And, and so did I mm-hmm. actually, I started in March. Oh, cool. Yeah. So it's been, um, it's been fun and um, fun might not be the right word. It's actually been tough reading all these books and learning. Like I, I knew the drug war was a problem. And then I started mm-hmm. reading, reading more into it. And it, it, I realized it's a lot worse of a problem than I even realized when I started. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people, uh, you kind of find that when they get into it, it's just, um, kind of, you know, what we are exposed to just in general culture is so superficial. It's very surface level and it's very curated to really paint things in it one dimensional way, or I guess two dimensional. Um, so yeah, when you start kind of peeling back the layers of it, you're, it's appalling to see how, you know, just kind of awful it is and how, how deep the root, the rot rather goes in all of this. And, um, you know, it's terrible for many reasons, but the worst of all being that, you know, humans, people, lives are the, the collateral here. So yeah, I, I, you know, I empathize with you deeply. We all, we all, you know, came from somewhere and um, I've been pretty open before about how, um, you know, I've been doing harm reduction for, for close to nine years at this point. But before I started doing that, um, you know, I was a, I was a worker. I was a, I was working in an ER here in Austin and, you know, I just, I would see patients come in who had experienced an overdose or were, you know, had some kind of issue related to their drug use maybe. And, you know, I just didn't give it that deeper level of thought until one day someone, uh, you know, a fire crew wheeled in this patient and they had called us in advance as they do um, said, you know, it's an overdose patient, but they're okay. We're going to bring them in from monitoring and all that. And they told us when we rolled in, they're like, yeah, this person's friends gave them naloxone before we even got there. And I was just like, wait, like, I still remember where in the ER it was when I heard that, because it was like getting hit with a bomb. I was like, how did they even get it? And they were like, yeah, I don't know. Started looking more and more into it. And I was just like, this is the most brilliant idea. It's amazing. And it just, you know, I just kept following it from there. So yeah, it's something that... <laughs> Um, I think a lot of people have that that same kind of experience where they really have to go down through the levels because what we're all taught is very superficial. Yeah, yeah. I had um, Gretchen Bergman from Moms United in California on, and and they they basically pass out naloxone. They go across the country, and they've um, they've estimated they save something like two thousand lives, and that's just the ones that were reported. Yeah. And the problem is, is I went to my pharmacy because I looked it up. You can, you can get naloxone from any pharmacy without a prescription. So I went mm-hmm. to my pharmacy and they had it for $175. And I was like, well, 
that's a problem for addicts. Um, not a, yeah. they, they can't afford that. So I think the groups that are passing out, giving the, the free naloxone, that's great. Of course, I think on the long term, we could do a lot better than just saying, here's something that'll save you when you get a tainted batch of heroin or whatever you're doing. We could offer a, a safer drug supply like Switzerland does. But I think we're a long way away from that in this country. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. So was that your uh, getting you started on this path uh, to with the um, drug futurisms was your EMT experience, the driving force, what you saw there, or did you have per- personal experience with friends or, or growing up in drug culture yeah. or just the EMT experience? You know, it's a little strange. Um, I would say that my experience in healthcare was the major driver. Um, I have mentioned before to you that like my dad was a prosecutor and he retired recently, but you know, we spent his entire career prosecuting a lot of drug charges. So, um, you know, he would tell me about these things and tell me about the people he was prosecuting and he would, you know, kind of in this parenting impulse would always try to really drive home to me this idea that, you know, drug sellers are stupid, bad people. And there was a lot of that just kind of over and over again. And the more I saw, the more I realized that that was incorrect, but also that that is a very functional framework. Like there's a reason why we're all coached to think of people who use drugs or sell drugs as very less than, and kind of like the dregs of humanity. It serves a really important purpose for the people that perpetuate that idea. Um, But kind of to answer your question more specifically, um, Yeah, I kept, you know, I kept seeing the same people coming in over and over and over and over. Every time you come into the ER, it's wildly expensive. It's pretty much the most expensive way to get care in the United States. And yet, kind of ironically, it's the only option that's available to a lot of people. You know, you feel, I I don't think folks realize, you know, if you're as insulated as I am anyway with, um, you know, I've got good state benefits through my job. (laughs) I can go see a doctor anytime I want. But, you know, if you're not able to call up someone and go into a clinic, you're not able to go see specialists, the ER is what you got. Um, and, you know, Mtala is the thing that allows people to keep being seen, even if they do not have any money. Um, so we kept seeing the same folks over and over again for the exact same things. And it was just such a broken record kind of context. It was like, none of this is working. Um, and I feel like every time we see these people, they're a little bit sicker. Um, you know, they've racked up multiple near-death experiences, really, like being revived by naloxone in, you know, the span of a few months. This is awful. Like this, we've got to do better than that. So um, that kind of point really dovetailed with me actually reading an article on BuzzFeed of all places about harm reduction as an idea. And it just, that was just really kind of a fortuitous combination of events. And I just immediately saw the tremendous potential of that framework for this population that I was um, becoming more and more exposed to. And also seeing lots of like very real medical problems aside from overdose that were being completely disregarded and ignored. You know, folks would come in with like really bad infections, for example, like in their skin from injecting um, when they aren't using like clean technique. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, we can teach folks how to, you know, really clean their skin. Like that's a really well-known practice. Like we do that every, every time. If you have your arm cleaned with some alcohol before you get a shot, 
that's evidence-based best practice. Lots of our, <laughs> lots of ink has been spilled over, you know, exactly how to do that. Um, but it wasn't translating. It wasn't making it to the people that needed it. No one was interested in teaching these folks how to have a healthier and safer relationship with drugs The you know, docs and nurses would just kind of be like, if you keep using drugs, you're going to die. Just stop it. I'm like, this just isn't very helpful. Like I've, I have no personal experience with disordered substance use, but even I know that it's not that simple. I'm like, y'all know that it isn't that simple, but there isn't a great option. So I feel like our healthcare workers get very frustrated because even if they have someone sitting in front of them that needs some other kind of help, that doesn't exist in the U.S. We can't, like, there's no really consistent way to have a patient quickly, expeditiously, efficiently funneled into, you know, treatment if they're interested in that. We have people all the time that approach us and they're like, I want to try treatment right now. Unfortunately, we've got a year-long wait list to access public methadone in Travis County where I am. So, you know, those structures just don't exist. And I kept seeing, you know, more and more and more and more of this. And it just drove home for me that there's not an easy solution. There's not even a decent middle ground solution. Harm reduction is going to be the thing that gives people the space and the tools to exist in a better way with drugs and exist in a way that make them less harmful. So, um, you know, I just found that to be a tremendously important and powerful framework uh, from a public health angle. And, you know, of course, harm reduction also, its roots are in abolition. It's in social justice. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to misrepresent harm reduction as a movement. I just personally see it through more of a public health lens in terms of my practice. Um, Yeah, because I kind of got it from uh, you know, emergency medical background. And that's how I approach it. That's how I first saw it. Gosh, yes. So, and I wonder, so if people want to go into rehab, this is a, a sad fact that some people actually want to get better, but they can't do it on their own. They, and they also have a lot of underlying, um, whether it's childhood trauma or they have uh, mental disorders that they're, and so just getting clean on its own, isn't going to work. You also, they also need therapy and help. And if we, maybe if we stop spending $58 billion a year fighting the war on drugs and if anything else, just stop, you know, we could still, we don't have to legalize. We could just stop wasting all that money on something that's not working and put that money into rehabilitation. Then we could see crime rates go down, drug rates go down, our, our drug abuse and drug addiction go down. And um, I really think that, and that's one of the driving forces for me in this podcast is to get people to understand this and look at it from a new perspective. Because people, like you said, people have that, that. Um, bias where they, when they see a drug addict, like just stop doing it, you're going to kill yourself. And they don't realize it's not that easy. It's not that simple. And so I have a lot of empathy for these people that are really going through a really hard time. And um, there's my dogs. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. I was, um, I kind of like the idea of like, just really embracing complexity. Like it really is appealing, excuse me. It's really appealing to try to see substance use as really cut and dry as use it or don't use it. And, you know, as we all know, there's a lot of complexity in there that's simply unavoidable. And yeah, that may be harder to think about, to understand, to act upon, to correct, but it's still the reality that we have to contend with. So as long as we're trying to approach it from this very 
simple, very binary way, um, you know, that we do currently in the US and Canada, then we're just going to keep failing. It might serve a couple of people, it might serve a handful of folks, but the vast majority of people aren't being served by that. There's a lot of survivorship bias in this. Um, you know, I think we've all heard folks who will tell you that, you know, prison, for example, is what got them clean. Um, they had to hit rock bottom and that was the kick in the pants they needed to kind of change their life. And I'm completely sincere when I say that that is a fantastic thing. And I'm glad for those people that they found, you know, a place in life that they feel better. Um, having said that, there are a lot of people most people for whom quote rock bottom is death. So we have a lot of folks, we have a, a we have a big issue rather with um, survivorship bias and that narrative. Um, you know, you can easily, easily cherry pick people to kind of put in front of lawmakers, put in front of the public um, who will tell you that these really kind of simplistic and reductive approaches like 12 step and abstinence is the only way. If it works for some people, they should be able to have that. But if that doesn't work for you, which we see is the case for most folks, we should have options for them too. Yeah, I like what you said about cherry picked because they there's always going to be those stories, and they do this with everything with the, the problems with inner city violence and with you know, you know the twelve through K programs that aren't funded properly. And then they'll say, "Well, look at these people that came out; they were successful, and it, and they are." Yeah. There's been a lot of people that have been successful that have come out of poor neighborhoods. But they're a small fraction. But those are the stories we want to tell. American right. works. It's alive and well. And the same thing with drug addicts. There's so many people that do find God. And and, and most of these 12-step programs are based on a form of, uh, you know, a route towards religion. And that's not for mm -hmm. everybody. And I know they do have spiritual spirituality sides that aren't necessarily religious-based, but it's spiritual-based, which... And, and I think it's a great thing if it works for some people and some people it does and, and it's yeah. it's great, but for some people it doesn't. And also I think the trauma is what we're not uh, addressing in a lot of these people is uh, childhood yeah. trauma. That's extremely hard for some people to get over, especially if it's something like sexual abuse, something that, they, that they're just not going to be able to cope with. And the heroin soothes some of these problems for these people. And, yeah. and now we have heroin that is extremely deadly on the streets. Um, and that's why we had a hundred thousand people die in the last 12 months. And this is, uh, this is not okay. I mean, we talk about, you know, this is almost COVID numbers. COVID killed what 600,000. So we're, we're one sixth there with something. And this is people that are, could be young and healthy. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's yeah. a big, big deal. Um, are, are you still working in, uh, in medical? Or are you still a paramedic? Yeah, I'm still a paramedic, but I don't work on um, in the ER or on an ambulance right now. Um, I do full-time work at UT, the University of Texas at Austin, um, in the College of Pharmacy. We do, um, we've got state grant supports through the, the through Texas to um, implement and evaluate some programs that are using SOR dollars, so state opioid response money. Um, which was has been out for a couple of years now. So um, I get to, to help with that. It's really meaningful to be able to, you know, see programming around the state and see what's working, what isn't, and how, you know, the process unfolds of deciding, you know, who gets what money for what, where, when. Um, so that's been really useful. Um, and it is, it's really impactful to be able to, to work in a way that has such tremendous scale because uh, we're a giant 
state with a lot of people um, and a lot of diversity and a lot of different cultures, it makes the work complex to do correctly, um, but it must be done correctly. So it's really cool work. Um, but, you know, I, I maintain my paramedic cert. Um, I do my continuing education every year so I can re get recertified appropriately. Um, and because I think it's incredibly important to stay directly connected to the folks that you're studying because I'm an academic um, and I like doing research. One of the things that I realized early on was that there was very, very, very little um, academic research, like scientific peer-reviewed rigorous research on harm reduction. Um, and that's changing quick, 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 quick. But when I first started several years ago, you know, I would do these searches and would find nothing. I'm like, there's got to be a best technique out there, right? Nope. <laughs> well, nothing that was put into journals. And I want to, I want to put a, a big fat asterisk on that statement because, you know, this has been a tradition that's been handed down, um, harm reductionist to harm reductionist spread from group to group across the world, um, through word of mouth, through teaching each other. And that is every bit as valid as, you know, working as, you know, publishing something in a journal, Having said that, there is something to be said for the ability to come together and decide on, you know, as a group of peers, analyzing rigorously and kind of dispassionately said, like, we have evidence that doing X, X way is going to get the best results as we know it now. Um, and to be able to share that in a way where you don't have to know someone to kind of get that, that new information. So all of that is to say... Um, I still think it's really important that if I'm going to do research in harm reduction and with people who use drugs that I maintain active, ongoing, like physical connection with the group. So I do outreach still um, here in Austin. And mostly what I do is wound care and like coaching on vein care, um, like how we can keep our veins as healthy as possible for as long as possible. Um, because, you know, losing sites where you can inject reliably becomes a pretty big problem. So I'm able to apply my, you know, my skill in, in, you know, kind of the medical side of things through that way. And I'm able to help people in that way, even though it's not in an emergency room, but the demand for someone with healthcare training, who is going to be compassionate and just non-judgmental and just provide warm, friendly care and advice is huge, huge. It's so sad. Like it's an odd experience for me when I have like, when I might take care of someone who has like a bad wound and maybe we take care of it over the course of a couple of weeks. And then I see it, you know, get better. And these people will get effusively thankful, like over the top thankful and of course that feels good, but at the same time, it's crushing because that tells me that these people have not had a decent interaction with healthcare in a really long time. And they're just really overwhelmed to have someone who's not lecturing them and calling them names just outside of the room. Um, someone who isn't telling them to just get their shit together and stop using drugs and walking out because I've seen all of that many times over. So um, yeah, that's been... That's something that I continue to do, something that's still really impactful. Um, 
we need to learn so much. We need to figure out so much. We need to produce better tools, better resources. We need to produce a body of knowledge for people who use drugs because there's tremendous need. And, you know, most of the folks in ivory towers do not give a shit. (laughs) It's hard to get them to care. It's hard to, to promote this kind of work as something that's a valid uh, kind of thing to pursue professionally. It absolutely is. And it's fascinating, but, you know, I'm glad to be in such a, you know, rich environment where there's a lot to do and a lot of good to be done. Yeah. So, so I, am I understanding this right? So that you do have safe injection sites in Austin? We do not. I, I didn't think so. Texas, I feel like Austin probably would, would open, uh, would be willing to do that, but Texas not, or yeah, so Austin's rapidly changing. Um, I'll say that there are unsanctioned underground kind of loose networks of supervised injection sites that are kind of here and there. Um, but I really can't comment on that too much because they're obviously great targets. <laughs> um, but no, nothing sanctioned, nothing organized, nothing that's been going on for a long time or any, anything like that. Um, Austin has grown just wildly in the past several years. Um, and so Austin is unfortunately becoming more and more conservative. Um, this past, uh, this past year, in fact, we voted, um, we voted yes on prop B, which was a local ordinance to make, um, being outdoors and homeless illegal. So now the police are able to actually ticket people who are unhoused just for being there unhoused. Um, And that was like a really unfortunate kind of indicator for me that we're seeing a pretty big philosophical shift um, much more towards, because I feel like, like, quote unquote, like old Austin wouldn't have done that. Um, But, you know, your point's well taken. We're still lucky to be in Austin, um, you know, because the rest of Texas is a lot more consistently conservative and our governor likes to really score points. on optics. So things like, like this past legislative session in Texas, we worked hard to get laws passed to decriminalize drug paraphernalia for one. We wanted to be able to remove that as an impetus to, um, you know, leverage greater charges. Um, A lot of the times police will use like small things like paraphernalia to leverage searches, for example, to try to find drugs, try to find other things that they can hold people on. Um, and as long as syringes, for example, are illegal, they're going to be scarce. When they're scarce, they're going to be reused. They're going to be shared. And we know that to be not only really indignified, like who wants to put a used syringe back in their body? No one feels good doing that. But um, it's also a great way to spread disease. So we even tried to approach it from a public health angle and didn't work. It got knocked down. Uh, we tried to formally uh, legalize syringe exchange. And that didn't work either. Um, But, you know, we do have syringe access in Austin, but it is technically illegal. So we kind of exist in this somewhat tense kind of gray area. The local police in Austin basically agree to leave us alone and kind of, you know, tolerate our presence. Um, But, you know, we could at any time be shut down within the parameter of the law. Because every time, you know, the syringe exchange goes out, there's that great big bucket of sharps, right? When people come and turn in their 
they're used syringes, well, that's a lot. So if you stop at a sitting point um, and you see all those syringes in there, well, they're all going to have drug residue on them. And that's what makes them drug paraphernalia. So that would be possession of paraphernalia. Um, but, you know, thankfully that hasn't happened. I've only encountered the police, you know, trying to kind of shake us down once. Um, it was scary, but thankfully they left us alone. And there's uh, many other parts of the state where it's nowhere near that, you know, kind. Um, mm -hmm. Many other parts of the state where they very actively go after harm reductionists. They abhor naloxone. They'll use seeing naloxone in someone's car to try to leverage a car search. They'll claim that it's illegal to not have a prescription for it, even though it's not true. Knowing that if you are someone who uses drugs, you're probably traumatized by past encounters with the police and will be too fearful to push back. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's um, my heart breaks, and you know, as trite as that sounds, my heart breaks all the time for people in more rural and more isolated areas of Texas, which there are millions um, that don't even have the kind of threadbare services relatively speaking, that we offer in Austin. We are lucky. Yeah, and I wonder why it's, and it's across the world this way, that the conservative areas are less compassionate in this. And it's weird because I'm not conservative myself. I try to not be political on my podcast because I don't want to alienate you know people yeah. who are one way or the other. But my family is very conservative. And they've been, my mom's been listening to the podcast. And I've opened her eyes on this, but it didn't take much because she is a compassionate person for her to agree with me. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of conservatives, the, the not the people in politics, but the, just regular people would, could get on board with some of this if they saw it help people as they did in Switzerland. Switzerland's a conservative country mm -hmm. and they were anti-legalizing uh, heroin for addicts until they saw it work, until they saw their parks clean up, no more needles everywhere, no more home, the homeless problem went down. So they said, hey, it's working and it actually saves them money. So- mm -hmm. I think oh, we, it's a huge savings. Yeah. So, so that places like Texas, which is very conservative now, and it, it just it's just it bothers me that and this is the party that you know says that they're they're the Christian party or the evangelical party, and um and and the idea behind that religion is you know the teachings of Jesus, right? That that have compassion for the sick, have compassion for the poor, and you don't see that a lot and. But also, I want to have another question aside from the conservative thing. So are there actual nurses that I assume nurses working at these kind of underground um, safe uh, injection places that are, like you said, that you can't talk too much about. But if a nurse got caught there with the syringes and got charged um, with that paraphernalia ch charge, could she lose her nursing license? Yeah, absolutely. And that's another big problem. Um, that's been something that's really limited. Um the ability to kind of scale up and staff some of these things, I believe. So I'm not a nurse, so I put a big, you know, kind of caveat on that. But I believe that the licensing rules do vary from state to state. I'm sure that their core is the same all over the country. Um, but like, for example, here in Texas, you answer to the state board of nursing. <clears throat> like, if you do something wrong. Um, you, you know, have a, have a significant error that prompts an investigation into your fitness to be a nurse. Um, so there's probably some variation there, but yes, absolutely. Nurses function under their own professional license. Um, and, you know, in practice, they, 
you know, they will work as a team member with physicians. It's not to say that they like independently prescribe or anything like that, but they maintain their own license, which means that they can also lose their ability to practice. It can be removed. Um, and that's an advantage, I think, of using EMTs and paramedics, uh, at least in the near term, because we don't have that. Um, so I have a certification and I am technically licensed within Texas, but it doesn't really mean a whole lot. Here in Texas, you're a licensed paramedic if you are certified as a paramedic and have a degree. So I have a bachelor's degree, so I just automatically get to be a licensed paramedic. It doesn't mean that I know more about paramedicine than someone who isn't licensed. Your bachelor's degree is in anthropology? It is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that is absolutely a problem. And it's something that you really got to tread carefully on because you also don't want to ask nurses to put themselves in harm's way or put not harm's way. Um, I guess a better way to put it would be, you don't want to ask nurses to jeopardize their, their career without making it crystal clear that that's a potential. Um, and there are many places that straight up won't use nurses because the threat of them losing their license is just too real. Um, it's too prescient. There's a lot of people that will, you know, unfortunately think very, very little of that kind of work and would see it as a major lapse in judgment and would be eager to report nurses for doing that kind of work. Um, and as long as the policies say that doing something like that um, would be grounds for losing your license. That's the reality that we have to contend with. So yeah, absolutely. There's a lot at stake for those people. Um, do wanna, one of the reasons why I think tremendously highly of harm reduction nurses, like not only are they doing something really loving and compassionate with their education, they're also taking a pretty significant gamble of their own livelihood um, because they believe in what they're doing so, so stringently. Yeah, yeah it's a limitation. Yeah, people be willing to do that. But I mean, a lot of people get into medicine because they actually want to help people. Like some people get into it because there's money there. or It's a good career. But a lot of people get into it because they want to help people. Yeah. Can I worry about what what license you're going to take from them? If they see people hurting, they're going to try to help them. And that makes them heroes to me. And and I hate that, that that they're put in a position where they if they try to help somebody, they might lose their career. And that's just the world we live in. And like in a certain places, if you go, like say California or Portland or Vancouver, their laws are a lot different there. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, it makes a big difference. And that's, this is something that's kind of come up in other contexts too. Um, like in Texas, for example. Um, so I work for the, the college of pharmacy, which I think I mentioned earlier, but um, so we, focus a lot on pharmacists and pharmacies as you know access points and partners and harm reduction. And one of the things that's come up is the way that the law is written in Texas, theoretically, potentially, pharmacists dispensed syringes to someone that they knew were going to be used to inject drugs, they could face prosecution for that. Now, there's a huge amount of like nebulousness in that. Like, how do you prove that they knew, for example? Um, and no one has been prosecuted for that before. So, um, and it would be, and having discussed this before with an attorney in public health law with Corey Davis at the uh, Network for Public Health Law, um, 
it seems unlikely that that's ever going to happen. Having said that, the fact that it hangs there, it's written in the in the statute, means that there's this omnipresent threat that makes it hard to kind of pull new people into better practices. Because especially if you're brand new and you just <laughs> staring down the barrel of all the debt you just took on to get your professional degree, that's kind of a big pill to swallow. Um, so there's a lot of these little obnoxious <laughs> kind of uh, laws and policies out there that, you know, just really prevent or dissuade uh, potential fantastic partners in all of this from getting too involved, lest they find themselves unable to use the education that they worked really hard on. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, reminds me of the laws, uh, like the Rave Act It's the law that they don't really use at the festivals but that they can. So the festival, the promoters at the festival have kicked out dance safe because they say, well, if dance mm. safe's here, then that, then that means we admit that we know that there's drugs happening here. And if they mm. had a festival where they knew there was drugs happening, they're liable to be held criminally liable for it because of the rave act. And though the rate, the, the government hasn't really ever used the rave act for that. They could. So therefore dance safe gets kicked out. Dance safe was testing people's drugs for their purity, helping people who are having bad experiences. And now they're just not there. And then there's uh, the bunk police were the ones that actually, I think they broke into one of the festivals. Like they, they got kicked out and they went in there undercover and were passing out drug testing kits and stuff. But people going against the, going against the grain, like, like the nurses, I think it's great when people do that, that kind of these renegade people that want to help, like almost mm-hmm. like want against this war on drugs. It's, I mean, more power to people that are doing that. It's, uh, but it's, it's a weird world that we live in that you have to do that. Because if you look at Spain, these festivals, people aren't overdosing and dying in Spain because their drugs are being tested. The government mm-hmm. has their own testing sites. Yeah. So, um, so that, and that actually brings me to fentanyl because fentanyl is in so many things now. It's in, it, they found it in cocaine and ecstasy and it's, and it's killing people. But also there is misinformation about fentanyl because fentanyl is used very safely in hospitals every day. Uh-huh. Um, but people are it, are just terrified of it because it's all about do- like you had the episode based on that. The dose makes the poison. Mm-hmm. And that's it. If, if it was regulated and somebody that was an addict went to a place that could get heroin, they could get fentanyl. They're not going to die if it's regulated the right way. But um, right. You're, the guy on your podcast, Ryan Marino, was telling the story about showing up at the hospital and somebody had overdosed and they were worried it was carfentanil. So they had towels stuffed under the doors instead of yeah. going in there and resuscitating the patient, they were allowing him to die because they were too scared. Uh, and, and that's in, it, as far as strong as carfentanil is, it, it can't be airborne, can it? Or can it? No. no. <laughs> yeah. So um, this is a really, like you said, this is a really common source of misinformation. Um, carfentanil is more potent than, than fentanyl by, um, you know, by a considerable amount. Having said that, it shares the same, uh, you know, molecular properties. And I don't want to get too far off in like the the chemistry weeds, but it has the same behaviors in terms of safe handling as fentanyl does. And we know that fentanyl doesn't like to linger in the air. Um, Ryan has also, <laughs> he's joked before about how the only way that you would get fentanyl or carfentanil to be a, an inhalation risk would be if you had like, like a scarface size pile of it <laughs> with like a fan behind it. Like it would take a really extreme scenario, um, where the air was just thick with dust because there was so much of it and you took a big breath of it. It would literally have to be the that kind of scenario. And that's not what we're talking about. Right. So when, like in, in his patient example there, 
Well, that wasn't happening. They just thought that the patient had consumed the drug. So it's not like there was drug floating around in the air. So yeah, fentanyl and carfentanil don't behave that way. Um, and they don't pass through the skin very well at all. Um, if you, you know, and that's another big thing. There's a lot of anxiety over like passive exposure by touch. Um, and a lot of, a lot has been made of that. There's been a lot of, you know, I'm sure you've seen them like videos of law enforcement officers, like, you know, grown young men taken down, like collapsing, um, because they, you know, felt that they were near fentanyl and, and felt ill and collapsed. Um, and, you know, that's just, that's not something that fentanyl does. If you ever speak to someone who uses fentanyl skin patches, like they're prescribed them for pain, they will tell you that even though that, you know, that technology is designed to get fentanyl through the skin, it has special additives in it that help fentanyl move through the skin. Even then it takes hours for the fentanyl to build up in their bloodstream to the point where it's relieving pain. It's not a quick acting thing at all. And the kind of fentanyl that we're usually talking about in these circumstances is powdered. And things that are dry and powdery are especially bad at moving through our skin. Um, and the kind of fentanyl that's in skin patches is kind of like a gel um, and it's moist. So sorry for using the word, everyone's squick word moist. Um, but um, yeah, you know, this just isn't real. And I, I, you know, I think the fact that he mentioned this being something that occurred in an ER and the people that were doing this were physicians and nurses and, you know, people with really advanced scientific training, I think it says a lot about the power of panic and the power of myth and fentanyl more than a lot of things these days has this tremendous air of mythology around it. Um, and I, I, I think that's a really great example of how powerful it is. It's not just people that don't understand science. It's people that understand it very well. And they're still so, you know, kind of distracted by the mythos that they're not really thinking critically about like, well, okay, what does it make sense that fentanyl would do this? Have there been, you know, peer reviewed reports of fentanyl doing this? Is this an unknown you know, condition? or circumstance to worry about. And it isn't. And, you know, these same folks will approach other things that are less emotional in a very rational way. Um, you know, I'm sure the colleagues, you know, of Dr. Marino's who were doing that would approach cardiac arrest, for example, in a very disciplined way, they would go by, you know, the most up-to-date guidelines based on reams of research but as soon as someone comes in who is a suspected carfentanil overdose, well, then all bets are off and we kind of start panicking. We start stuffing towels under the door and abandoning a patient, which is just like, it's the most fundamental wrong, uh, of, you know, um, as a healthcare provider, just because of the, the tremendous mythology that sparks such panic in us all. So it's, it's been fascinating in a way, but it's very frustrating. It's kind of an interesting social psychology observation, but that's the end of the interesting part for me because yeah. <laughs> so much, uh, so much harm and so much distraction. Like we've got actual problems in this area. Uh, fentanyl isn't fentanyl passive exposure is not a real distraction or it's it, sorry. <laughs> it is a distraction. It's not a real problem.
Yeah. What do you think causes these, the officers? Is, is it almost like a placebo thing where they start feeling sick and they, they just, they, they, they drum it up in their own head that they're actually about to die and, and they just collapse. Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, I do really want to emphasize, you know, people tend to, when I talk about this, people tend to say something like, oh, so their response is fake. I don't think it's fake. I think that what they experience is very real to them. Um, but going off of what you said, I do believe that that's what it is. So particularly in the case where someone thinks they've experienced a drug that they haven't, and they react as if they did, that's kind of uh, better known as a nocebo effect, nocebo. Um, as kind of a, a slight variant there. But yeah, you know, I think that's what's happening. Um, I think that the idea that they may come in contact with something that will kill them like that because that's the myth that's spread in law enforcement. I think when you hear that over and over again from your colleagues, your peers, your supervisors, people that you trust, if you're constantly berated with this message and it's really strong in law enforcement circles, then yeah, if you go out in the field and you're kind of terrified on the inside that this might happen to you and it happens to you, you actually do like end up handling someone that has fentanyl, then yeah, I think it's really easy to just become overwhelmed with the anxiety of that situation. And that's a very real thing. So just because it wasn't fentanyl doesn't mean that they were acting. Um, I don't think that they are. Um, you know, the fact that when, when, you know, folks describe this sensation, they usually describe things like all of a sudden I couldn't catch my breath. I, my heart was just pounding and I was just <sighs> panting. I couldn't stop it. And I felt like I'd been kicked in the stomach. I was really nauseated. And then all of a sudden, you know, everything went black and white and I saw stars and I felt really dizzy. And then, you know, I collapsed on the ground. I got naloxone and then I woke up and I felt much better. So the idea that getting the naloxone has fixed you kind of allows your brain to kind of exit that cycle. But what people are usually describing with that situation is anxiety, like so pounding heart. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I really think that that's what's going on or, you know, variants thereof. I don't love doing armchair psychology, but like the, the things that people report, the symptoms that they report are pretty classic, usually for anxiety versus an actual fentanyl overdose, they wouldn't be conscious for it. They would go down, they'd have really slow, really shallow breathing or no breathing at all. And then, um, you know, clammy skin, um, but they wouldn't have really fast respirations. The whole right. dizziness, racing heart, super classic for anxiety. As you know, I'm sure plenty of people have experienced that in other situations. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's kind of an interesting example of how if you hear about this stuff a lot, it can really prime you psychologically for a reaction. Yeah, it reminds me of the study that I, I was reading that there was a, a study that was done with, you know, half the patients were given placebo, half were given some kind of it was like a new antidepressant medicine or something. And one of the guys in the study decided that he wanted to take his own life. So he ate the whole bottle of pills, then had a change of heart, went rushed to the ER, was 
you know, like you said, high blood pressure and blood pressure through the roof was freaking out. Was he was dying? And the doctors, the doctors finally got a hold of the doctor in charge of the study. So, well, give me the uh, the code on the pill bottle. They gave it to him. He said, "No, that's the placebo." He he got the placebo. Mm-hmm. So he told him that he was fine, and that was because. Yeah. And so that's the same thing naloxone was doing in these situations. Once they got the naloxone, yeah. they 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 got the information that they've been cured, and the panic attack stops. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I mean it's a very real thing, and I think it, you know, it also illustrates the power of suggestibility and priming, which we're all vulnerable to, literally everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the fact that, you know, the police consider themselves as especially like tough and, and vulnerable, that this is still happening to them, despite kind of this uh, culture that they maintain of being domestic warriors in a lot of ways. Like if you go look at like a lot of their training material, that tends to be how they cast things in terms of like battle and war. Um, despite that, despite the fact that they're very much kind of trained to be especially tough, this is still happening. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, everyone is subject to this. And it's another reason why, you know, correcting misinformation is so important. Like, not only do we not want people to be panicked about this, it's not great, but it's a huge distraction from what's actually happening. And it gives us scapegoats that aren't any good. You know, you can um, try to blame that person that they stopped in a traffic stop that happened to have fentanyl. It makes that person this outlandish boogeyman when in reality, that's not, that's, you know, individuals and communities using drugs are not the war on drugs. They're, they're not the, the root problem here, you know, but it allows people to focus on something more tangible when, you know, the actual problem driving drug use and overdose rates in the U.S. is much bigger and more nebulous um, and harder to get your mind wrapped around if you're just kind of an average consumer of the news. Yeah. Yeah. Um, talk about we use scapegoats. The drugs are a lot of times we use them as a scapegoat, right? When we say opioid crisis, that's putting the blame on the drug. That's why for my mm-hmm. opioid crisis special, I call it the opioid regulation crisis. Your co-host, um, I heard him say overdose crisis. I like that mm-hmm. too, because it's saying this, it's the dosage is the problem. So overdose crisis works, opioid regulation crisis, but opioid crisis is like, all right, we have, we got to fight the opioids harder. They're, they're coming in and they're attacking us. It's like, this is not <laughs> happening. So, yeah. Yeah. And there is, um, yeah, you know, it's an interesting kind of point about language. I also generally prefer to say overdose crisis just because that's really what people mean uh, for the most part. And you know, one thing that we've been seeing that's this very unfortunate overcorrection has been um, a really big push to de-prescribe people who are on opioids for chronic pain. We're taking those away and being really tight-fisted with opioids in situations when it would be clinically appropriate because there's this really outsized anxiety among healthcare that they're contributing to this. Even though at this point we know that prescription opioids just are not the driver anymore, it's pretty dubious if they ever were the driver. Um, it certainly didn't help, but you know, because overdose rates were already climbing before like 20 or before the year 2000 when this was kind of considered to have kicked off. Um, but having said that, the idea that prescription opioids are really the roots of this issue is very strong. It's a very popular narrative. 
Uh, and we see this bleed into policies within healthcare. So, you know, I hear these horrid stories of people who have been happy and functional and living their best life on opioids that have been well-managed. They work with a doctor to get to the right dose, the right drug and all that. And then boom, kind of overnight, this doctor, and it's usually some kind of administrative policy says you have too many opioids on your, you know, your DEA number, this needs to come down. We need to de-prescribe people. And so these people have their meds pulled without any kind of reasonable replacement. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, hearing these horrible stories of people taking their own lives because that's how horribly miserable they are day in, day out and don't see an option. Um, and you know, I heard a story recently about someone whose grandmother was had like terminal cancer, had only a couple weeks left to live. It was the prediction and they were not wanting to prescribe her morphine for cancer pain because, you know, Oh, well, what if someone happened to get it? And what if they became addicted? I'm like, what do you, <laughs> cancer pain is one of like the classic uh, examples within healthcare of when you really need pain management because it's really miserable. Um, so it's just been this really awful overcorrection. And um, I'm eager to see that come back a little bit and to see us kind of collectively relax and realize that opioids are not bad. They're just a tool that is morally neutral. <laughs> it just mm -hmm. depends on how they're used. And um, you know, it's the tainted drug supply. That's the problem. It's not opioids yeah. per se. Opioids are, are fantastic. They're drugs that relieve suffering. And there's a lot of experiences that I wouldn't want to go through without having that as an option. Yeah. I think most, I say most doctors would agree that the most important drug in the history of the world has been the opium. I mean, and it's also, it's definitely had devastating effects too, but for its medical use, there's nothing better for doing surgeries. And yeah. I mean, even fentanyl, like the, like what before that, even morphine wasn't quite strong enough for heart surgeries, right? Like the fentanyl really, really opened up some doors for relieving pain. And I'm reading this book right now called on opium by, um, Mm -hmm. Carolyn Zornstein, but she's going to be on the podcast. But yes, she's, she's a chronic pain patient and she takes tramadol, which is not a very uh, mm -hmm. powerful one, but, but without tramadol, she's like, her life would be miserable. And she worries every day if, if they could pull it. And she's went through and talked to other chronic pain patients and people that are just addicted to street drugs and just talked with them. But a big part of the book is about our current medical system where they don't want to prescribe that doctors are getting in trouble if they, they prescribe too mm -hmm. much. And a lot of a percentage of people who are chronic pain patients will turn to the streets once they, once their supplies cut off. And, yeah. um, and, and some of them won't, some of them will just suffer. So, yeah. but what's, what's your, what's like, what's the point there? You're going to have some people suffer and some people on street drugs. Why not have both of them allowed access to a safe supply? Yeah. And I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of arguments about it. There's a lot of arguments that opioids aren't a great option for chronic pain. And, you know, we probably do and did use opioids in situations where they weren't the best option. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, but I don't think anyone's making that argument at a scale. I hear that rolled out sometimes as like an argument against it. They're like, well, you know, people prescribe opioids more than they should. Da, da, da. Well, that's probably true. Um, but you also have to consider things in context. So it does frustrate me a little bit when I hear folks making the argument that, you know, well, what's really needed here is probably 
you know, weeks of physical therapy, for example, when accessing things like that, like these, um, you know, extra services beyond just seeing your PCP for a lot of people, isn't something they're able to access. Um, like there's, there's, you know, just a totally contextless truth maybe. And then there's actual practice for your patient. You've got to be able to consider both. You can't take, you know, a working solution away from someone if you can't give them something else that works as well, you know? So if you're basically like taking tramadol away from your patient and saying, no, Karen, you need to go get PT for the next six weeks and there's no ability to access PT, have you actually helped your patient? <laughs> you know, so you've got a, um, and that's just one example. And this is of course complicated by the fact that it's also a medical issue that only some people can really fully speak to, but, um, yeah, it's been a, I'm looking forward to reading her book as well. I have it on my shelf. So it's, you know, it's been frustrating in a lot of ways, but I feel like, um, you know, there are definitely lots of doctors that are part of the problem. Having said that, I think the bigger boogeyman here is the fact that the DEA monitors all of their prescribing and kind of acts as this cop that has no medical knowledge themselves. They just kind of objectively like to kind of bully almost, like coming up with limits that are fairly arbitrary um, looking for problems that aren't there, um, and really, and they're also so opaque that the prescribers I feel are often anxious that they're going to cross a line with the DEA without realizing that they've done it because the specific guidelines are very hard to understand. They're hard to access and really get their head around. Um, so that's something that we hear all the time is I would love to be able to do X. I'm really afraid that the DEA is going to swoop in and completely stop me from being able to prescribe at all. Um, and, you know, maybe take me offline for months while I get it worked out or something like that. And they can do that. And they do do that. And, you know, in theory, it's supposed to crack down on unscrupulous prescribers that are prescribing really inappropriately without thought to their actual patient's benefit. But in practice, it comes out to a lot of micromanaging physicians without understanding what they're actually doing. And it ends up harming the patients. So um, I'll just be a shout out there. <laughs> I think one of the bigger kind of more proximal problems here is that we've got basically a cop trying to regulate medical decision making. Um, without really considering the medical science and without considering the relationship that a physician or a prescriber may have with their patient and the tremendous work and effort that's taken. Um, so yeah, and that's something that also comes up in the patient monitoring program, the PMP. Um, you know, you are considered a red flag if you have to drive a long way to go pick up your meds, for example. Well, here in Texas, we have tremendous areas, huge areas where there may be one pharmacy in an entire county. You may have to drive hours to go to the nearest metro city. So it ends up kind of, you know, cracking down on people who are living in isolated rural areas, which are more likely to be impoverished people. So there's a lot of 
just vast oversimplification that ends up being a real net harm to individuals. So I um, look forward to the day when there's no longer this very literal policing of this component of medical care. I think patients will be better off without it. Yeah. And that's kind of how the whole thing started with Harry Enslinger, right? You had a, mm-hmm. a law enforcement agency that started telling cops how to prescribe their patients and the, and the, the doctors who were prescribing heroin to addicts, they weren't thrilled about doing that. They weren't like, Oh, they need heroin. They were like, these are weak willed people. They, they didn't think highly of them, but they knew if they could give them heroin, that they could still be, they could, you know, hold jobs and be fathers and, and mothers. Yeah. And they told Harry Enslinger, they're like, if we, if we, don't allow them safe access. They're going to get score on the streets. The prices are going to go up. They're not going to for their families. The uh, quality of the drugs are going to be dangerous. Everything they said would happen, happen because they are medical and they know uh, how, how to prescribe things to help their patients. But right. law enforcement came in and said, here's how you're going to do it. And that's what's happening today with a DEA. And, you know, it reminds me of this quote that CS, I think CS Lewis said it, that, you know, the most oppressive governments are going to be the ones that are doing it for your own good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's the thing, like, uh, we're just trying to, we're just telling you how to, you know, do your patients because we know what's best for everybody. It's like mm-hmm. kind of scary. And then also there's the fact that without the war on drugs, if they did solve the drug problem, they'd all be out of a job. So it's almost yeah. like they perpetually need what they're fighting to continue. I was actually thinking about that the other day, because I was trying to can't remember who asked me, but someone, I was trying to figure out kind of in my own mind, I was like, what do I think is going to be the hardest single thing to get past if we were to actually end the drug war and, you know, public opinion is one thing and it's certainly not good right now. Having said that public opinion has shifted in a significant way on other issues, even within my lifetime. And that's pretty significant. What I'm more worried about is just what you said. It's the fact that there is this entire infrastructure based on the war on drugs. There are hundreds of thousands, if not more, jobs that rely on the war war on drugs. Like if you're a police department that's not really tiny, you probably have a narcotics division um, and you have a whole budget for that. You get all kinds of stuff to go, quote, battle the war on drugs. Um, We even use the war on drugs as an excuse to kind of monitor and bully our allied countries. Um, We had a guest on um, Drug Futurism's podcast who's a Costa Rican drug activist, and he talked about how Costa Rica doesn't have a Navy, but they do have a naval base, and it's ours. And we just swooped in and put our naval base in Costa Rica because we said that we needed to, to monitor drug trafficking through the region what the fuck is that? So there's, you know, and it's always such an easy way to score points. If you're a lawmaker, if you're an elected politician, very few people, unless they really understand the implications are going to see a problem in a policymaker standing up and saying that they're going to battle drugs. It's such an easy way to score points. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's more the, the kind of legal and political and, and, uh, like geopolitical infrastructure around it that's going to be the bigger supporting factor. And I'm afraid we're going to have to get to a point where the public opinion is overwhelmingly positive before we start seeing change at that level. And even then, it's just going to be so hard. There's so many people that have a dog in the fight, so many people that depend on it for their, um, you know, for their work. 
it's not to say that it shouldn't go away. It absolutely should. Um, but it's going to be, there's going to be so much resistance. There's going to be so much to untangle. So I think that's going to be the real big problem there. And it started with the the federal government started giving, um, tax, $150, I think it was under Reagan for every drug arrest for local law enforcement, because law enforcement at the Mm -hmm. time didn't want the federal government telling them how to run their their cities. But they're like, oh, we'll we'll give you money for every drug arrest. And this is only for drug arrest. Now, if you arrest somebody for for rape or uh, child molestation, there's no money for that. And then Mm -hmm. so when you're a breakfast in Latin America, they were talking about that there, that it's like there was an eight-year minimum sentence for selling crack rock, but only five for sexually assaulting a child. And that just reminded me that's that's the United States. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know if ours are exactly like that, but the point is that we have a lot of incentive for law enforcement to go after drugs, but not for crime that most people would say they care a lot more about. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think that the average voter even understands that either. Like these policies are kept, you know, very inscrutable and very opaque. um, And that just makes it really hard for the public to understand what they're really endorsing. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why I'm doing this podcast. And I know one of the reasons why you're doing yours is to get people to see these things, to change their mind. I mean, yeah, my sister has her master's in Latin American studies. And when I started this podcast, I started asking her questions about the war on drugs south of the border. And she didn't even know because mm-hmm. it's been taught in a, in a Latin American study. She knew very little about the war on drugs. She said she learned more from narcos on Netflix than getting a master's yeah. in that. And so since then, she's read books about it. And we, I've had her on the podcast and we've talked all about the problem down there because it really is tragic what's happening down there. And um, the United States, we have to take some responsibility for that because we started this whole thing. Oh, yeah. So Yeah. No, the, the pain and instability that we've brought on other, especially the global south, is inexcusable. So, yeah, we have a lot to atone for. Um and a lot of there, yeah, there's just been, yes, <laughs> I could, I could really go into that, but yeah, it's, it's bad for everyone except for the people that continue running it. So it's uh, which is a small, which is relatively speaking, a small handful of people. So it is. yeah, it's really time to undo it. And yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, podcasts like these and just general public communication about the reality of the drug war and the reality of the drug market uh, is really important. Um, you know, it's a point that I like to make whenever, especially when I talk to students, is that, you know, literally all of you, including me, have grown up completely stewed in war on drugs propaganda. And that's just a reality. It's, you know, it's incorrect to say that you haven't unless you didn't, you know, grow up in the, in the West at all. Um, and that's okay. But it's important that everyone realizes that that's a necessarily a bias. It's necessarily a paradigm that you view things through. And it's going to be really difficult to see it because it's been there since you were alive. It's been there since you even remember. This started, you know, formally anyway in 1971. So, you know, yeah, all, every single undergrad I talked to, I'm like, it was going strong for decades before y'all were born. So you need to realize that this is a very well constructed and intentionally constructed um, frame and lens on the world that you've seen things through. And, you know, uh, you know, I love, you know, a good law and order binge as much as the rest of us. It's become harder and harder to enjoy. The more I've learned, the more I realize that it's, 
you know, it may be a compelling story, but it's also propaganda. Um, and it, you know, paints things in a very unilateral way. It doesn't really um, give you insight into what is causing a lot of the crimes that they talk about. One of the things I like to point out is that, you know, really healthy communities where we see people that where we see lower rates of drug use are communities that are just really beautiful and well-nurtured, where people invest in people, where you invest in support for people and programs for people. You create, you know, communities where people feel connected and thrived and valued. Those are the places, that's when we start seeing lower rates of substance use. Um, so it's, it's complicated, but then it's also simple in some ways. Um, but yeah, you know, it's just a, it's a, there's a lot of propaganda out there. We've all just become completely immersed in it. Realizing that you've done that and realizing what is true and what is propaganda, what is an assumption that you're making because of the propaganda you've consumed is really hard work. Um, and I think it's important. And the more I think we can do to help people and to nudge people a little bit, to think a little bit more, to interrogate their assumptions a little bit more, the better. So, you know, I really think this is gonna be the long game. <laughs> uh, one of my mentors likes to say, um, Steve Stephenson, he likes to say that if you're thinking about a problem you can solve in your lifetime, you're not thinking big enough. Um, and you know, this is not gonna be solved in our lifetime. I hope it gets a lot further, but it's not going to be. So this is something that's going, it's a necessary investments in, you know, the health and future of our civilization, I think. So, yeah, I've always said my goal is I think within a hundred years, we can, uh, I won't be alive, but that generation will look back at this time and they'll be the way we look back at previous generations, like the, when they were burning people at the stake for witchcraft, like mm -hmm. look, they're going to look back at this as, as, wow, I can't believe they were doing that. Like the yeah. land of the free had more people behind bars than any other country in the world. Like yeah. these are the things they're going to look back and like, I can't believe that was happening. And um, yeah. you're right. The propaganda is going to be, and that's the, my biggest message is trying to get people to see that they've been lied to. And I have people on social media who I don't even know who reach out and just say, you know, I've lost my brother to drugs and what you're doing is awful, but they're not listening to what I'm saying. And it's like, yeah, but you lost your brother under prohibition. Of course, I don't really respond with that because I'm not going to, you know, it gets too personal, yeah. but that's how people view it. Like drugs ruined my friend's life. It's like under prohibition. These are all under prohibition. And that's not to say that in the legal system, they might not have had a drug problem. It just wouldn't have been they would have been able to handle it a lot better, but doing it in the dark, going, getting it from CD people and on a black market. I mean, that's what uh, Milton Friedman said. He was a conservative economist. He was like, if you look at the war on drugs from an economic standpoint, the job of the war on drugs is to keep the cartels going. And that's what we have. We have a system that all the drugs are pushed into the dark. All the users are pushed on buying it on the streets, not knowing what they're getting. So we have to change people's minds. That's what your podcast is about. That's what I'm about. So, yeah. well, it forces innovation too, which I think is kind of funny um, because in a lot of ways it mirrors some of the things that we see in above ground economies. How, you know, you can get these like splashy tech CEOs that'll talk about like changing landscapes, forcing innovation. Well, prohibition is forcing <laughs> drug manufacturers to be more and more innovative. Mm -hmm. It's, um, and I don't think people realize that. And, you know, I also don't think people realize that the move from heroin into fentanyl is a bad harbinger. 
not just because fentanyl is so much stronger and therefore more dangerous. It means now that we've moved from a crop that is um, more known and more controlled in its experience into a limitless realm because we've now gotten to the point where drug manufacturers are comfortable with the idea of creating new molecules in a lab. Labs are many orders of magnitude easier to hide than a football field sized crop of poppies. Um, You can put them under tarps in forested areas that aren't even really visible by drone. Um, and you can make new things. It's one of the things that like when I see these like fentanyl laws, for example, you go open up the text and look at them. I laugh because they have page after page of chemical names that apply to this. And the thing is, is that there is no bottom to that. Well, you cannot name all of the potential drugs out there that could be a problem in this space. You can't name them because there are some out there that don't exist yet. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of the beauty of chemistry is that we're constantly learning new ways to create. It's very artistic and very creative in a lot of ways. People think of it as being very rigid and it's not. So we're in a position where we can and are starting to see new molecules appearing faster and faster and faster. And we are, you know, five miles behind trying to get caught up on what this is, what risks it has, how it's going to affect people, where it is, where it's coming from. Um, and you know, the tremendous lack of transparency and sharing in terms of drug monitoring makes it even harder. Like with there is D, like the DEA has data on a lot of drugs that they seize and they don't really share it. Um, so we've now pushed cartels and other drug fan- manufacturers and drug sellers into a position where they're gonna be able to run even faster. They're gonna be able to work more quickly. Um, And also these drugs being super potent means that you can pack a lot less for the same bang. So it makes moving and transporting and storing them easier and cheaper. So we've really forced drug manufacturers into a point where they're actually going to be able to be more nimble and produce substances that are a bigger problem for people that want to be aware of what's out in the drug supply. Yeah. I was reading, it was, I think it's 50 kilos of heroin to the equivalent of one kilo of fentanyl. So from just a logistic standpoint of getting it across the border, fentanyl makes more sense Mm -hmm. for the cartels. And this is a problem that they said that they think within the next 10 years, there won't be heroin at all. It'll all be Mm -hmm. fentanyl because it's not worth the risk of losing the crops that that they're losing a lot of money. And that's also, there's another problem with the burning of the crops that the DEA does is there's a, a shortage of supply for opiate in countries, even like Canada, where they, they don't want to prescribe as much because they don't have mm-hmm. enough opium. It's like, well, stop burning it. If you, mm-hmm. if you bust it, <laughs> cut it down and give it to the hospitals or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. There's a politician in um, Colombia who, you know, very famously a source of cocaine production. And he, I don't think he was successful. I need to go check in with him. But um, his idea was to to nationalize the cocaine crop, like the coca crop, and you know use some of it to treat people with cocaine use disorder, um, sell some of it because it also has medical use, um, 
But yeah, you know, it's just another example of how we're just kind of willing to burn the house down with everyone else still in it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, like you point out, this is not a useless substance. (laughs) It's a very important precursor um, that, you know, we do things with and, you know, just burning it down, you know, destabilizing local economies as well when they do that, which kind of makes things worse. If your economy is really destabilized, well, then you're probably more likely to have to go into illicit means of putting food on the table. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we um, are chronically bad at throwing out the baby with the bathwater big time and just being incredibly myopic about our approach. Yeah. So, so we, we really got to have a lot of work to do as a country. And that's that's what that's what we're trying to do here. You know, I think uh, the biggest problem right now, like you said, is it's the the way our political environment is, is if somebody comes out and says, I'm going to get tougher on drugs, they're getting votes. But if somebody mm-hmm. else came out and said, I'm going to decriminalize all drugs. Because I saw this with when Oregon did that. I heard so many just overheard conversations just at the restaurants I go to and stuff where people are like, did you hear what Oregon did? Like, well, that's those crazy liberals. Their city's on fire and they're legalizing (laughs) drugs. It's like, you don't even understand. Like, they have no idea what they're talking about. They're just Mm -hmm. regurgitating the propaganda that they, you know, that's bouncing around their heads. And that's, I don't know. I think that's why we got to, but I I think this is a great step. One state does it, like, look at Colorado. Colorado legalizes um, recreational cannabis and we start to see it go across the country and the people that were hit the hardest with the drug propaganda um you know are now elderly who actually need cannabis for certain things are getting mm-hmm. seeing it in florida they're going to, i went and got my medical card and i was the youngest person in there and these are all people that now have completely changed their mind about cannabis because they're using mm-hmm. it and they're like oh so that's a positive step and i think if if we look at oregon's numbers over the next few years and we start to see the positive effects the, the only thing I worry about is that you'll, there will be people that move there, which will could create their numbers might be skewed by the people that migrate to there because of the drug use that happened in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Like, well, yeah. crime actually went up. It's like, yeah, well, people moved there and a lot of people moved there with the, who had problems, who wanted to go there for the legal cannabis. And so, yeah, you're going to see that. But yeah. overall, I think it's going to be a positive experience. Yeah. You know, it's, and that's a great thing to bring up. I think cannabis is actually... Um, the le- and you know the legalization and decriminalization of of cannabis has been a nice way for some of the folks that are kind of like you said that are just really immersed in their own propaganda or sorry immersed in drug war propaganda uh i think it's a nice way to introduce them a little bit of cognitive dissonance on this and um, mm-hmm. one thing as you're totally right so you know i live in texas oklahoma just to the north of us um allows medical cannabis. I think it's just medical. Uh, sorry. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is, you know, I, my husband's from Kansas and usually every Christmas we drive up to Kansas, uh, from Texas. So we go right through Oklahoma and every year it was just, you know, it's Oklahoma. There's not a whole lot there unless you're in one of the cities. Um, it's a lot of rural space. And then the year after they made that law, man, it's like all of a sudden dispensary after dispensary after dispensary everywhere, big, shiny, bright neon lights. Like, obviously there's a lot of money coming into this. There was one that was like just over the Texas border, which I thought was too funny. Um, it's a pretty smart positioning there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and this is fascinating because Oklahoma is just a deeply red place. Um, and, you know, again, I don't, I don't think, I feel like politics are kind of over-relied upon as well, but 
Um, definitely correlation there though, in terms of attitudes about drugs and, you know, and since then, you know, I was at a, I was at a farmer's market recently, you know, close to where my dad lives, which is in Round Rock, um, which is a suburb of Austin. Um, and it's a fairly conservative suburb. It's a lot of folks that need to work in Austin, but don't like the liberal environment. Um, and they have now um, CBD and Delta 8 booths there. And it's just, they're just there and they're unremarkable. It's there next to the tomatoes. <laughs> and, you know, no one is scandalized by it. And people will go and, you know, they'll talk about how great it is for their anxiety and, maybe it's the only thing that works for their dog's arthritis and they have great things to say about it. And I feel like this has been a nice little kind of foot in the door moment because just a few years ago, these people would probably tell you that, you know, weed is a devil's lettuce and it's a gateway drug and yada, yada, yada. So I feel like this sudden swing in places that are traditionally very conservative towards embracing, um, you know, the compassionate possibilities for cannabis has been really pretty cool. And it's interesting to see people very quickly have a shift as soon as they start seeing it being more and more accepted by their peers. Um, and so, you know, this wasn't anything that kind of was handed to them from a top-down perspective. It seemed to really take a lot of root and spread really quickly from person to person to person to person. So I think it says a lot about the importance and the power of just kind of going directly to the source and having people talk to their friends, talk to their family members and getting this peer influence. Um, but yeah, you know, the fact that I was there, um, you know, seeing cars in the parking lot that still have Trump stickers on them and people going and talking to like these, you know, the Delta eight booth and picking up some samples and things like that. I'm like, this is an interesting thing that I'm seeing here. Um, and I'm glad because this is almost like a little gateway drug to rejecting the drug war. <laughs> I've said yeah, I've said that same thing myself. Yeah. Because it is like pot might be a gateway drug, but not the way they've been saying it. Uh-huh. It's a gateway into people accepting yeah. the uh, decriminalization. So I really hope that's that's planting some dissonance in some people's brains and maybe they're gonna start working out that it's not nearly as simple as it's been painted to them before. So have you not I, I read something somewhere recently that Texas just outlawed Delta 8. Is that true or was that a bill that's up for a vote? I think it's so we don't have, we're not in session right now. I think it's being introduced. I don't know that it's happened yet. I haven't heard anything about it. Is it um, definitely going to pass or is it just something that's up for a vote or something? I don't know. So our next session doesn't, our next legislative session isn't going to come around. Um, wow. For another year. Um, but things like that need a lot of prep time. So I'm sure that it is being worked on right now. Um, I don't really know. Um, I feel like there's, there's been some significant movement in Texas in terms of relaxing on cannabis, like here in, in Austin and Travis County. Um, we have a DA, a, our district attorney. I'm a really big fan of his and he came on and, you know, early, like as part of his campaign for district attorney, just laid it out. He was like, I'm not going to prosecute low level drug crimes anymore. I'm just not going to do it. And the thing that's really fantastic about that is that if your DA is not going to prosecute it, then the cops immediately lose a lot of their incentive to Mm -hmm. harangue people over things like that. It takes some of the venom out of that. 
Um, and he's just launched a, you know, a program to really encourage people to start paying attention to the overdose crisis. There's, it's easy, especially if you're in an insulated place, uh, to just ignore it and pretend that it happens to other people. So he's trying to really push for that. So I appreciate all of that, but I think it says something that we're getting to a point where attorney, like district attorneys who, you know, for decades have made tough on drugs, their bread and butter, getting to a point where they're like, I don't believe this is worth my office's time anymore. Um, so I think that that's really telling. Um, even here at UT, um, like the UTPD, they don't really care that much about cannabis anymore among the students. They've mentioned this to me kind of, you know, off the record, it certainly is an official position, but they've mentioned to me before that, you know, it's just so common for the college students to have small amounts of weed that it's just stopped becoming worth their effort. Um, so I kind of, you know, I appreciate that we're getting to that point where the supposed dangers of cannabis, people are starting to realize that they're just not what they were cracked up to be and that it's so ubiquitous that it's just, it's not worth all the effort anymore. And I think once we start getting to that point where people realize that this is not a black and white scenario is when you're going to start seeing more and more thought. Because, you know, if you see everything as binary, you don't have to think about it. And that's comforting. But as soon as you start really realizing that things are not binary, well, it's a little uncomfortable and you got to think about that. And that's when you start seeing movement. So um, I think the fact that we're seeing that kind of legal environment around like THC, I think is, is hopeful that the whole Delta 8 thing just won't fly because it really just feels like a panic thing. Yeah. Um, so it kind of depends, unfortunately, on just the, the state of the legislature at that point. We had elections and... Um, or sorry, elections are coming up for state reps. So, um, and we're heavily gerrymandered in Texas. There's a lot of unfair fighting here. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, one of our districts in Texas is famously just hilariously gerrymandered. Um, but it's, um, yeah, it'll be interesting. I think it might be a close call, but I'm, I'm hopeful. I don't think it's going to be the slam dunk that people outside of Texas imagine it might be. Gotcha. I think they're going to have more of a fight than people realize to ban Delta 8. Well, I really hope so. Um, is Kratom legal in Texas? That's a good question. I, it's only outlawed in a few states. I know Tennessee and Alabama. I'm not sure about Texas. Yeah. You know, I don't think it is, actually. Um, yeah. No, I don't think it is. Yeah, I, uh, I, we have a lot of Kratom. Um, they're called well, Kava bars here, but they sell Kratom. And it's the new rage with the kids that are 18 to 21 because they can go to a kava bar, but they can't go to a bar that serves alcohol. I do think Kratom's addictive, but I don't know. It's definitely safer than um, morphine or, or opiate drink. Um, yeah, Kratom, I don't know um, a ton about like the clinical environment for Kratom. Um, I know. <laughs> so yeah, it's hard to kind of, to kind of, take a stance on that. I don't think it's been researched enough. It has some activity with the SNRI. I'm sorry. It has like some SNRI like activity in the brain. Um, 
which is a little different than the other opioids. And that seems to be of concern to some people, but yeah, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing more, more research on it because, you know, I'm excited about any possibility that we have out there to, you know, be constructive. Yeah, me too. And I, I, I do worry a little bit about the kind of the social party atmosphere aspect of it, because it could be powerful for people that are for that want to curb the withdrawals from uh, stronger opiates. And mm-hmm. I'd hate for it to get shut down. The DEA did try to outlaw it, but there was a petition yeah. and they didn't outlaw it. And um, I signed that petition. So that felt good. Something yeah. actually worked. But um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. One, one thing about you said about colleges now, or, or at least uh, UT kind of turning a blind eye towards cannabis use. It's just ironic to me, though, that that was ever an issue with cannabis use in college because um, alcohol is so heavily promoted in the college atmosphere and alcohol is such a more dangerous substance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, many times over. And there's, you know, um, excuse me. I was going to say. So if you, yeah. <laughs> I'm being so ineloquent right now. Um, No, you're totally right. And it's, you know, it's such a cultural thing for college students. It's just such a like expectation in some ways, almost. In fact, some of the public health programming that we have here at UT tries to push back against the idea that if you're in college, you drink inappropriately. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, It's just such a thing from like movies, for example, that if you're in college, you're going to get blackout drunk and vomit all over your floor. Like, no. That's not necessarily going to happen. If you do that, it's, you know, within your right to do that. But um, there's, we've been trying to kind of just let students know that that's not something that all of their friends are doing, even though it might seem like it. Um, There's a lot of power in, in showing people that may be primed for extremism, that the average of their peers is actually much less. Um, because you know, when you're young, peer influence is just huge and that's, you know, that's not a bad thing. It's just how it is. So yeah, you know, it's, it's amusing to me sometimes when I kind of see some of the data from our student surveys that we do, when we see that, you know, alcohol use that could meet diagnostic criteria for disordered use of alcohol is actually fairly uncommon, um, and it tends to be kind of isolated among, uh, you know, certain peer groups. Again, peers reinforce your behavior. Um, when, you know, if you watch movies about set in college, you would expect that, you know, half of the campus would just be drunk at all times. Um, so, yeah, it's been interesting. But there's a lot of marketing. There's a lot of expectation. We've got, you know, alcohol billboards all over Central Austin, um, you know, from alcohol companies. We've got like Budweiser sponsors, like some of the game coverage for our football games. It's just mm-hmm. it's omnipresent and everyone just, you know, deals with it. Some people have issues with alcohol, but most people don't. Yeah. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I, I drink alcohol. Yeah. I same. A little more of a problem with it when I was younger, because it was the, uh, you know, my college years was party, party, party. Mm-hmm. And um, and I don't, I don't think we should go back to prohibition. I think alcohol is a part of our culture, yeah. but I do think I actually, I think we should take away some of the advertisement, some of the, like the sexiness of the getting drunk. I think it should be something adults can do. They should get mm-hmm. at a restaurant, but, but for the most part, I think most people are responsible. We have, I was listening to somebody who was talking about how we have always oh, Michael Poland 
and he was talking about how we have rituals with our drug use, like the, how indigenous tribes have rituals with their, whether it's peyote, then it's not like a party thing. It's a ritualistic thing. And he's like, mm-hmm. when you have rituals with your uh, substance use, it helps, uh, uh, makes it a safer situation. So we do that with alcohol, right? We have mm-hmm. most people like we don't drink until a certain hour. We don't drive. You know, we have it, we eat food when we drink. So all these little rituals that we do are actually safety measures, making mm-hmm. sure you have food in your stomach, making sure you're not going to kill It's harm reduction. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, it totally is. And, um, you know, I think that's been one of the things that's kind of interesting. I've heard before, uh, like when we're planning conferences or talks or something, so I'll just be like, well, if you have so-and-so as part of this panel, just tell them that they can't say the phrase harm reduction because <laughs> it'll turn off the whole audience. And I'm just like, I mean, all right. But I think if you actually tell these people like what it is, like when you get past this idea that they have, I'm like, it's literally just the idea that there's safer ways to consume a substance. And it's a very old idea at this point. It's just. Um, just not nearly as, as scandalous as I think a lot of people think, because yeah, I think if you've been to college recently at all, you probably had to complete some sort of module about if you do consume alcohol, you know, what you just said, it's good to drink when you've had food, you should space out your drinks, be aware of how you're feeling, do water every other drink for exist things like that. And I'm like, this is just harm reduction. It's, um, not nearly as as spooky as I think you're imagining it to be, but there's absolutely, like you point out, there are a lot of different ways to engage with your substances. There's a lot of different ways to have a relationship with alcohol. Some people use it very seldom. Some people don't use it at all. Some people use it to excess and it, you know, starts harming their body. Um, yeah. So there's just, you know, a zillion different ways to cut it and I don't think that's a revolutionary idea. <laughs> I wish more people would kind of get on board with the idea that there's spectrums to everything, including our substance use. Exactly. And I think alcohol prohibition is a good model for the, our, you know, the other drug prohibition, because if we look back at what happened with alcohol prohibition, it was worse mm-hmm. for our whole society than legal alcohol. So we legalized and nobody at this, most people don't want, want to go back there. So mm-hmm. we look at that with our other prohibitions. There's safer ways for people that if they are using a narcotic, let's look at Switzerland, you can go to a clinic and get your heroin and they give therapy and counseling. And a lot of people will get better and get off of it. And I think the biggest point I try to make is that, you know, I'm an anti-prohibitionist, but we want the same thing as prohibitionists. We want less people to be addicted to drugs. We want less people to be overdosing. We want a safer society. We don't think we don't want to legalize drugs so that everybody can be doing heroin. That's not at Mm -hmm. all what our point is. So, yeah, it's, um, Yeah, I think a lot of people don't really understand that that's just that if there was legal, accessible heroin like that, I think a lot of people imagine that people would then just kind of run out and try it in droves. Um, And that's just that doesn't really track like I've had before people who will tell me that it's important that I not ever mention um, that, you know, you can purchase drugs in a community or don't mention that heroin feels good. Like, don't tell the students that. I've had someone tell me that before. And I'm like, do you really think that if I mentioned to a student that yes, you can purchase drugs in Austin, Texas, that they're going to like run out of here and go track someone down? Like, did you think they maybe didn't know that? 
Um, I think pretty much everyone realizes that drugs are available for purchase pretty much everywhere if you just know where to look. Um, and that, you know, just understanding a little bit more about them is at no point going to make someone more likely to use them. Like I study drugs full time for my job and I don't use them. Um, so, you know, this isn't, I, I think people are just so fearful of it and have been trained to be so fearful of drugs that it really starts clouding just normal reason. And they start kind of, you know, assuming things that are, have no support reality just because we've been so trained to think of them as like this untouchable um you know frightening thing that's coming for our kids and it's not like your kids probably know more about drugs than you do at this point like it's um you know young folks are hearing about drugs a lot through social media and from one another and that you know that's been true for generations I feel like every generation as they grow up think that the kids <laughs> are you know just whatever happened to kids these days, they're just, you know, fill in the blank here. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a, <laughs> a true constant, but we're still seeing that now. And you know, that's one of the, the more reliable things to roll out. If you're trying to debate someone on drugs, just think of the children. What about the children? And um, yeah. There's... So that's what they always say. So what about the children? And my thing is if you have children, you have to ask yourself what your what your concern is. If your concern is overdose or addiction, well, it's worse under prohibition if they mm -hmm. choose to use. So you're not, and also what about having an arrest record? Do you want your child, if they do choose to use something, especially say something like cannabis in a place like Alabama that doesn't have any legal access to it. Now they have a permanent criminal record. I have a criminal record from when I was 18. I caught with this little small pot plant at my house. The cops came in and searched. All they found was this little plant that I had in the window and I got two pot charges from it and it stopped me from working in the corporate world my whole life, which I'm fine with because I have a, a, a job that I love now. But it, but a lot of kids, they want those corporate jobs. They want to have that kind of security and they can't get it. And if you look at how disproportionate it is for African-American community, 80% of black men in, in, this, in cities have criminal records. They can't vote. Yeah. They can't leave the country. They can't get get proper jobs a lot of times so yeah no i was just gonna say that yeah oh public sorry housing. no you're fine the public housing college loans all these things that they're held back and it's, it's all you know if, if i've been reading uh the new jim crow michelle alexander she mm -hmm. breaks it down very intelligently i think anybody they, that's what they should if they want to really see what's going on with the drug with the war on drug problem especially within the african-american community the new jim crow is a great book Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. I think it's required reading. <laughs> yeah. It's a really great like intro primer. If you've never heard of any of that before, it's a really great book to start with. I think. Um, yes, absolutely. I was just going to say like, it's incredibly racialized. Like it's really good that you being limited in your, in your employment experience ended up not being a net harm to you. Like you're, you're happier not working in a cube. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and you know, a lot of us would, and that's a whole other conversation, but yeah, I mean, it's so inequitably applied. It's used as a cudgel to keep, you know, communities of color destabilized and prevent generational wealth accumulation. Um, and, you know, I just, I, I feel like that's yet another, if not like one of the biggest arguments against the drug war is that it's not even about fucking drugs. It's about it's, it gives people something or it gives the police and law enforcement, it gives them something tangible to exercise racism, really. Exactly. It gives them a toehold 
to cling to, to allow them to arrest people, to incarcerate people, to destabilize communities and, and harm families. So, um, you know, there's, I feel like there's so many <laughs> arguments for ending this charade. And that's perhaps the biggest one is that, you know, we can talk about the importance of being anti-racist and that's good, but <laughs> there's so many things out there that are very literally physically codifying it into reality um, and continue like enforcing the very physical day-to-day differences between black communities and communities of color and then white communities. Um, like it's, I, I was recently able to give a lecture to medical students here and just kind of about this in general. And I, you know, I had 45 minutes with them. I was like, I just really want to impart to them that, you know, the drug climate is going to change so many times throughout the course of your career. Here's the nuts and bolts that you need to understand. And, and you know, I had these slides on how tremendously inequitably drug laws are applied across racial groups and how, you know, you get, like you mentioned this earlier, you get significantly bigger sentences for crack versus cocaine. And, you know, it is not a coincidence that cocaine is very much seen as this sexy, wealthy party drug for white professional people. And crack is seen as something that only exists in inner cities of people of color. And we know that isn't true in reality, but that's very much the marketing image. And it has borne out in the way that we, uh, uh, sentence people sorry and, and the arrests are, are much higher african oh, yeah. arrests, even though that statistically uh, white kids use it just as much yeah they're not arrested oh so. yeah and it's just anyway so you know i had all of this and I had a student come up to me afterward and she just walks up to me and she looks at me and she pauses and she goes i didn't know any of that any of that and these are incredibly smart people you know they're medical students they're smart they're hardworking. She, she was like, I don't know. I didn't know any of that. And I'm, I'm shaking. And I, she was like, I have to get involved in this. Like, this is not okay. I'm just like, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it also really says something that, you know, even people with excellent education, like that doesn't predict that they're going to understand this. That doesn't predict that they're going to have heard of any of this. Um, so, you know, it's something that, you know, we literally all have to do the work on and we literally all need to see that the war on drugs is being used for nothing good at all and harms a lot of people in a lot of communities and just needs to to get foe right now. Um, but yeah. I mean, well, that's why it started to begin with, right? Nixon was yeah. like, all right, well, I don't like the civil rights movement and I don't like the anti-war movement. So how do mm -hmm. we pick this up? We can't arrest them for, you know, for freedom, for speaking their minds because they have the first amendment. So we'll go after drugs because the hippies mm -hmm. like to smoke pot and, I guess they were saying it was heroin with the, the black communities. I don't know, mm -hmm. but yeah. either way they went, it was, it gave them a, a green light to just go in and kick indoors. And they didn't even have to find, they could plant drugs. It yeah. was just a free pass to do whatever they wanted to these communities. Yeah, no, it's awful. But yeah, I feel like a lot of people have never heard of that. It's certainly not something that you're taught in school. Um, like my high school history ended at world war two. Um, and then in college, it didn't even get to the civil rights movement. It's just not something that we teach people. Um, 
to be fair, I went to a small town public school in Texas, so it may be better in other parts of the country that are larger. Um, it probably is in some places, but it's just, it's not something that we educate people on. Um, and as long as we don't know that that's happening in mass and decide that we need to care about it, nothing's going to change. Um, but yeah, it's so fucking infuriating. Um, and it makes everything else you do around social justice work feel a little more futile if we keep having these drugs, drug laws on the books and they keep being exercised to do really horrible things to people and their families. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, a changing law and policy is really bitter, grueling, hard work, but needs to happen. It must happen. So I will say that to listeners, like, please pitch in a little bit of your time and efforts. Many hands make light work. <laughs> um, and your local harm reduction group or coalition out there is working very hard with very little support to make things better. So go help them. <laughs> it's hard work. And we need lots of voices together, lots of influence to demand that our lawmakers start pushing back against this. Awesome. It's great work that you're doing. Um, before we go, do you want to, anything else you want to say or tell them about your podcast or how to find you? Oh yeah. So my podcast name, um, is drug futurisms podcast. I host it with Alex Betzos who's a, um, Canadian drug activist and anthropologist and polymath and just generally really cool person. Um, you can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. We're on Apple and we're on Spotify. Um, and we have a Patreon, give you some behind the scenes footage, little goofy outtakes and things like that. Um, so yeah, and we discuss, we try to imagine a lovely future past the drug war. And we try to give people um, some hope and some imagination for a better and more you know, rich and beautiful future where drugs are part of it and it's no longer based in prohibition. So, you know, that, context for drugs in the U.S. and Canada right now is a very ugly one. Lots of fighting and lots of death and hurt. Um, and, you know, we fully believe that there is a better future out there. And we want to give drug activists just a little crumb of hope for the future. So um, it's been really cool. It's been a good exercise. It's certainly hard sometimes to think of these better futures, but you know, we've been able to meet and interview some absolutely fascinating people that have really cool things to say. So, um, yeah, we hope to see you there. And I'm excited to listen to more of your uh, episodes as well. It's been it's I can't tell you how cool it is, especially living in a conservative state to get to meet more and more um you know, drug activists and harm reductionists from other parts of the country. It definitely makes the work feel more um, community-based and makes me feel a little less alone. It can be lonely work sometimes when you're in um, a really big traditionally red state sometimes, but it's been great, you know, getting to share and meet and, and swap ideas with some incredibly amazing people. That's great. It has so much. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. It definitely yes. means a lot. And one last thing before we go, I want to point out you have uh, two cats on your shirt. Yes. I happen to wear my cat shirt today, too. Yeah. <laughs> I get, I love it. Is it like a psychedelic cat kind of? Yeah, it's actually a mellow mushroom shirt, the pizza chain. I worked there years ago. So this was a shirt from there. I love mellow mushroom. We had one um, just, it was on the drag, which is this like row of college themed 
businesses just off UT campus, but yeah, familiar and um, very endearing. Um, but yeah, I get so many comments on this shirt. It's so funny. I didn't think I was going to get nearly as many, but everyone, every time I wear it, someone tells me that they love it. So thanks. That's awesome. I'm all about the cats. <laughs> that means we got dogs and cats. They're both so fantastic. Just yes, warm and cuddly. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. And um, hopefully course. I'll talk to you again. Yeah, for sure. I'll um, uh, let me know when it drops and I'll definitely like promote it on, on Twitter and all that. Oh yeah. It'll, it'll drop next Thursday and I'll, I'll send you a link and everything like that. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for, for having me. It was a good talk. Thanks so right. much. Good talk. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right. Peace, Nicks. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Remember, go on iTunes. Give us a five-star rating if you're enjoying this. Follow us on Twitter at the Peace on Drugs, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and go to www.thepeaceondrugs.com to subscribe to our newsletter. And I hope you have a wonderful week. Happy holidays. There will be a few more podcasts coming out before the year's over. Got some good ones coming up, so check them out. And peace out.